Welcome to Follow the Data. I'm your host, Katherine Oliver. Across the country and around the world, housing costs are soaring. Rents rose by 6.2% annually in 2022 after growing by almost 15% in 2021. That's according to Yardi Matrix. And the impacts of these rising costs are clear. Research from the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau shows that nearly one-third of renters did not pay or were late with the rent at least once in 2022. For several years, the Bloomberg Associates sustainability team has worked closely with our client cities to address key housing affordability issues. This effort led to Bloomberg Associates and Bloomberg Philanthropies' partnership with NYU's Furman Center for Housing and Real Estate and APT Associates to create the Bloomberg Peer Cities Housing Network. That's funded by the Bloomberg Philanthropies Government Innovation Team in the summer of 2020. The network, a program that worked with a nationwide group of city leaders to address pressing housing-related needs, provided resources and guidance and the opportunity to exchange learnings with cities facing similar challenges. This met a particularly urgent need during the pandemic as local governments challenged existing thinking and responded rapidly to convert hotels into housing, to provide residents with direct cash assistance, and much more. In this episode, I'm talking with Ingrid Gould-Ellen. I'm the faculty of NYU Wagner and the faculty director of the NYU Furman Center for Real Estate and Urban Policy, Vero Soto, the former director of the Neighborhood and Housing Services Department of the City of San Antonio, who now spearheads the U.S. Treasury Department's Emergency Rental Assistance Program, and Adam Freed, the sustainability principal of Bloomberg Associates. We'll discuss how cities responded to the housing problems posed by COVID-19 and how the Bloomberg Peer Cities Housing Network helped to facilitate these initiatives. All right, everyone, tell us where you were at the start of the pandemic and what were some of the challenges and needs that you were facing in San Antonio? Well, it was a very uncertain time, very scary for San Antonio and for cities in general. We really had to scramble to figure out how to provide any services and to also look at our budget, which we were worried about because we started to worry about it cratering in the middle of the fiscal year. So even our basic services were at risk. We also were very worried for our residents and our neighbors as we tried, first of all, to get ahead of the public health impact, but also realize what the lockdowns would mean for families that depended on the tourism sectors in San Antonio to pay for their rent, their mortgage, their utilities, how they would buy food once they were laid off. It was a lot of long and sleepless nights for a lot of local governments. Mm -hmm. and, and Adam, what were you hearing back then in the early stages in your work with BA cities as they were responding to COVID? We were hearing a lot of questions and a lot of uncertainty and fear. And I would say pre-COVID, housing was already an increasingly critical issue for city leaders as we go into new cities and mayors would list their top three priorities. It was housing, housing, and housing. That picture shifted during COVID, not necessarily meaning that housing was a new priority, but the acute pain points, you know, worrying now about massive eviction rates, worried about another massive amount of foreclosures that could happen as people were laid off from jobs, thinking about how to deal with both public health risk that was caused by COVID as well as the economic fallout. And at the same time as they were trying to struggle with the new reality of it, and then federal programs that were coming out, 
they often had more questions than answers about how to respond to the acute need that was happening, how to set themselves up for the long-term impacts that were going to happen, and how to fully leverage all the federal funding and assistance that was coming and think about how to really respond to the, the need. So Adam, how did Bloomberg work with the Furman Center and apps to convene the Peer Cities Network? And why was there a need for this type of peer-to-peer learning during COVID? The idea actually came from the chief housing officer in Atlanta, someone that all three of the entities were working with in the very early days of the pandemic. She called me and Bloomberg Associates had been supporting Mayor Bottoms and the chief housing officer, Terry Lee, to create a housing action plan for the city. So she called and said, what are other cities doing? We don't know what's happening. What things are we not thinking about that we should be? How are cities responding to the crisis? I started calling around other cities. I've had a long relationship with, with Ingrid and, and with App Associates, who were also working in Atlanta. We started putting our heads together. And as we reached out to our networks, all the other cities were giving us ideas, but also saying, we have the same question. We, what are other cities doing? How can we learn from each other? So it was a very organic relationship that really became formalized with the network as cities wanted to learn from each other. And given the speed of change and extent of the crisis, there wasn't time to say, let's go write an academic paper. Let's think about hosting a conference next fall. It's how do we get a phone call next week? How do we keep this moving? And that grew into this this network that we're going to talk about today. Right, right. So Ingrid, now time to layer in your thoughts. Can you give us a little bit of context on the Furman Center and how Furman, you know, how you all first came to launch this peer-to-peer housing network and, and how it transitioned? We originally launched a local housing solutions workshop in the fall of 2019, and we solicited applications. We got over 20 applications from cities across the country, and we selected four cities, Atlanta, Minneapolis, Philadelphia, and San Antonio. This is where I met Vero for the first time. And each city brought six participants who were working on local housing policy, and it really was a chance for them to get together, and we worked with them intensively on a ranch in Montana. This was supported by the Arthur Blank Foundation to work out and further develop their local affordable housing strategies. And two of the big takeaways from that experience were the value of, for the cities themselves, of kind of working across silos, because we had people there from the housing authority, housing agencies, planning agencies, the mayor's office, the city manager, right? in San Antonio was there, and also the value of peer learning. And so after that, as Adam said, Terry Lee from Atlanta, who was one of the participants, actually approached us at the start of COVID and just said, wow, can we get this group back together? Can we reconvene? Because we are really desperate right now. And as Barrow said, it was a very scary time. Those first few weeks were really intense, and everyone was scrambling to try to figure out what to do to help the households and renters in particular. So we initially started with those four cities, but then also asked for other cities that were working with Bloomberg, Baltimore, Chicago, Detroit, and Newark, and then later invited Portland and Denver to join as well. And, and I think, you know, participant told us that the network, and, and Barrow maybe can, can confirm this, that provided something of a lifeline for cities. It was both a way for them to connect with their peers, not only to get real details on kind of the nuts and bolts of how do they roll out an emergency rental assistance program, and how can they help stem the tide of evictions, but also, frankly, just provide emotional support to deal with the and just stress. And that place, these, a safe, trust yeah. place, and just feel, you know, I'm not alone. And, and also, I think it's learning what What's worked for you and also what's worked for us. So it's an opportunity to say, look, we tried this 
and this really worked well for us, you should think about this, but also having the flexibility to address shifting needs in real time. Aside from the COVID crisis, I mean, there's no shortage of things that cities are dealing with on an ongoing basis. So can you talk about the flexibility of the network and the openness to talk to the crisis of the moment, if we will? So I want to add to that, when we got the invitation to participate in a conversation, it was a no-brainer for me to jump on that call. First, you know, having been with the other four cities, we had already established that trust and the knowledge base with each other. And so I knew who I was talking to and what those cities were dealing with, and that they too cared about the housing issues we were dealing with. And for us, you know, at the beginning, again, it's scary fearful, haphazard, being overwhelmed with both too much information, but not enough or not the right information. And so getting that invitation to participate in a call and hear what the other cities was doing was just like Ingrid said, a lifeline where, you know, you didn't have to have the answer. Often when you're in a city talking to your boss, if you don't have the answer, you feel like, oh my gosh, I don't have the answer. And, and this was the kind of situation where that was the case, but not in the peer city network space, because all of us were dealing with the information we had, the gaps of knowledge that we had. All of us were looking, for example, at the CARES Act that was being debated and trying to figure out what it would mean for implementation and what could we do with it and how could we use that money to help our residents. And it was an opportunity to workshop the projects. And so we would say, this is my interpretation of what the CARES Act says, and I wanna use it for this purpose. And this is how many months I think I can pay for rent, for example. Mm -hmm. And someone else would say, oh, but I'm actually looking at it instead of three months, I'm gonna do six months because of this. And so we were able to talk through the same policies, the same federal funding, and come up with better programs in real time, in a very safe space with trusted people. And all of us were facing a lot of the same federal kind of programs, thinking of setting up the same kind of solutions, but talking to each other helped us make our solutions even better without always having the right answer. After the conversations, I would workshop it some more with our teams and it just made it so much better. And and again, personally, it was very much that safe space because it was a very personally stressful time. Uh, If you're a a city administrator and the responsibility of not just keeping your staff safe, but in this instance, when we're talking about rental assistance, for example, keep people's lives intact. That's a lot of personal responsibility to carry and knowing that other people were dealing with it and carrying that burden and you were not alone, like Adam mentioned, was just psychologically even liberating so you could be more creative without that burden of, oh my God, if I don't do this right, people are going to die. I just want to add one thing. Well, first of all, I just want to say that Vero, I mean, I think you were absolutely working around the clock. I just remember you're sitting in your office and you and your key staff members, but you personally were there as were many. I mean, you really were on the front line and I just, I want to thank you right now for for all that you did. And uh, I think there were a lot of unsung heroes in in local government during this time. But also I wanna say another piece of this that was really, I think, impressive and important was, I mean, Vero talked about trust. 
the participants were sharing not only their successes. So this wasn't just like show and tell where they go out right. and like, let me tell you about what we did that was so great. It was actually, people were very honest about the failures and the struggles. And, and I think that made it that much more effective. You learn, you learn more from the, the failures and the challenges that you face. Um, no doubt, no doubt. I mean, as you all know, the mantra around here is if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. So I want to hear about how was data how is analyzing the data important to driving San Antonio's COVID response and just even broadly how that helps inform strategic planning? So for us, being part of the Housing Solutions Network before was a lot of the data gathering that we had. So we were prepared, you know, that saying fortune favors the prepared mind comes to my mind because we had prepared to be at the Housing Solutions Network since 2017, San Antonio had focused on housing. And so we knew where our community was when it came to vulnerable neighborhoods, what renters were experiencing, what average rents were. And then important for us, we had a lot of stakeholder groups from folks advocating for tenants' rights to the apartment association working with landlords who were willing to talk and work together and had the same data we had because they had already been working and talking to each other. And so because we had built that data sharing kind of platform and information locally, we were able to very quickly get those people to also talk and give us more feedback about how are we going to respond to this pandemic? How are we going to keep people housed? How are we going to do our emergency housing assistance? And then we had, of course, the seeds of, of this program in our housing policy framework, which was very data-driven. And so that helped us come up with the right information to shape our program. And we could do something more targeted because of that. Vera, you raised a great point about data. And, and I think that reflects back to, Kayla, your question previously about flexibility, because cities don't have a luxury of only responding to one crisis at a time. So in the midst of COVID and, and the acute housing crisis that was facing the country, we had the murder of George Floyd and a real reckoning with racial equity in cities. And, and housing was a core part of that. The flexibility of the network meant that we threw out our agenda for two or three months because the participants wanted to talk about racial equity, and what it meant in their cities personally and how they were responding to it and what it meant within the housing space. So we had a number of conversations around that, which evolved into how do you use data to actually think about this? What does it mean to have an equitable housing needs assessment? How do you measure displacement? How do you try to use that to shape policy? So we were able to create working groups with different members from the cities, people who are interested, bringing in outside experts to lead conversations around how to leverage data so that we can shape policy to try to accelerate solutions to solve for. And, and just if I can just give one concrete example of that, there was a lot of concern at this time from the cities that they were reaching the full set of, of needy tenants in their communities and that there weren't any particular gaps. They wanted to make sure that their emergency rental assistance programs were racially equitable. And we worked with several cities to help them analyze the data on their applications and look at the geography of those applications and see whether there were particular pockets of cities and whether communities of color in particular were producing kind of fewer applications. And if so, then they could rejigger and target their outreach strategies to make sure that the word was getting out in the full set of communities in their cities. So Ingrid, have you seen some innovations that cities launched during COVID 
that are informing their assistance to residents going forward or programs that were launched that you think will now be part of the day-to-day? Absolutely. There are a number of good examples. One very good example, I think, is Philadelphia's eviction diversion program. So Philadelphia adapted their foreclosure diversion program in the eviction context uh, beginning in, I think, September of 2020 in response to COVID. And the idea was that landlords, before they went to housing court, they had to offer tenants the opportunity to work with them and negotiate and try to reach agreements outside of housing court before they got to housing court. You know, I think as of late 2022, something like 3,000 landlords and tenants in Philadelphia have participated in this mediation process, and over 80% of them have reached an agreement before having to go to housing court, which, and and to be clear, so they're avoiding an eviction filing, which in and of itself, just the eviction notice can be harmful for tenants. And recently, that program was actually codified. The city council voted to extend that program and to continue it beyond the crisis. Another example is several cities have strengthened their systems of data collection, management, tracking, building on their EREP experience. Um, And, um, you know, we actually worked with the city of Boulder as an example, just that initially they weren't collecting much data at all on their rental assistance program. They didn't have a standard intake process. They weren't tracking. And now they have a new streamlined intake form. They have a follow-up survey. They have a public-facing data dashboard to track evictions as well. And all of that grew out of their efforts during the crisis. And I think eviction, you know, the emergency rental assistance program was really a great example of that, where cities had to learn how to communicate with renters differently, how to communicate with landlords differently. And they, for the first time, collected the data. And we spent a lot of time saying, don't let that data go. Think about how you can use it as you're thinking about code compliance, as you're thinking about other programs the city may offer. You now have a direct channel to people you never had before. And to Ingrid's point about engaging with different communities, the city of Newark as well did a great job at the beginning of getting out applications quickly. But by taking a pause as they got a second round of funding and looking at the data and saying, who did we reach? They realized they didn't get many people from senior populations or non-English speakers who applied in that first round because it was predominantly online and that required technology. It may have required different languages. So they engaged five different community groups and actually paid them to do outreach and to go knocking door to door, which dramatically changed who was applying for the program, which dramatically changed who was receiving assistance, which ensured that they could stay in their community. And it's not just the use of data, but I think those relationships that were created in the crisis that are changing the way cities operate and who they work with and how they engage with communities that will extend long beyond COVID and I think is changing the DNA and the culture of how cities engage. And Vero, it must have been so challenging because you see what's happening in your city. You saw what was happening in San Antonio and the instinct is let's fix it. Let's make it better. But I think important to learn to be flexible because you've got to be able to instill that this program will continue and you've got the initial, okay, let's react to a crisis, but then you've got the long-term planning. So what are some of the lessons learned about that in San Antonio? Can you give us some examples? Sure. So so I want to add to that. And, and those are great examples that Adam and Ingrid mentioned. So Obviously, there was a lot of learning on the flexibilities that you needed when you're creating an emergency program like this. And there'll be lessons for these kinds of emergency programs going forward as well. So a lot of the lessons had to do with effective outreach, like Adam was mentioning, and looking at the data to make sure that you are reaching who you want to reach and are aware of who needs the services and that you have 
the mechanisms that you need to reach them because the harder we made it for someone to apply, you know, on the online and someone doesn't have internet, obviously that's going to be hard. I think a lot of the eviction diversion learning that we've done are going to be ones that will continue forward. So Ingrid's example of how Philadelphia and great people there codified recently their program is, is one that I hope can continue. And many cities have seen the value of those eviction diversion programs and are going to continue to fund them even as some of the federal money goes away. And so I hope that even beyond the pandemic, when, once we truly get post-pandemic, we have those kind of eviction diversion programs. Those programs have proved their worth and I think are going to be part of that long-term infrastructure going forwards. No doubt that a network like this is so valuable. How do you keep it going? You know, Adam, like what, where do we go from here? There's so much to be learned. You just worry, are people fatigued? How do you keep the information flow going? There's always going to be another crisis for us, hopefully not at the level of a global pandemic. But what are your thoughts about the future and peer sharing through this network? Yeah, you know, I, I think one of the great things about this is that we've stopped running formally the network, but the relationships and connections have continued. So I still talk to every member of the network periodically, getting emails, phone calls from them. And when I talk to them, they've mentioned that they've talked to each other. So we built the trust and relationship, which is ultimately what a, a network is about. And that has continued. I think, you know, there is a urgent need to figure out how to spread the learnings we had from the network, even more as we've seen the shift as, as people don't have to live where they work anymore. The network Ingrid talked about in the beginning was about high cost cities that were working together to address housing needs. You have now seen the problems in Boston are now happening in Bozeman and Boise as people can shift to places that previously hadn't had housing issues. So there's not a city in the U.S. that is not facing an acute housing crisis at this time. So finding networks that exist in platforms like this podcast, like the Local Housing Solutions Network that Ingrid runs with Jeff LaBelle at App Associates that spread the learnings out and inject it into the ecosystems, I think are absolutely critically important because it's not only are there the cities that we've been traditionally working with on housing that need to continue to learn from each other and talk to each other. There's a whole set of cities now that are facing new problems that haven't had the history of the resources that others have that are grappling with these issues. We're in New York. I mean, you look at all of this empty office space and there's rumors, are they going to turn it into housing? We're going to be pivoting. People are saying that work life is forever changed and people are going to be working from home more. So does that change the demands of space at home? And of course, making it affordable and accessible. Can I add one thing? One of the ways that we have tried at the Furman Center together with our partner Baptist Associates to push out the information from and the, and the learnings from this network is we have a website called localhousingsolutions.org. And so we have tried as best we can to write up briefs that can share the learnings that from this peer group with the broader set of cities, because obviously there was a lot of learning that went on for these 10 cities, but our hope was that we could share that more broadly with the full set of cities across the country that are grappling with housing issues. Mm -hmm. All right, some final thoughts from the guests. What's the number one data point that we should be watching? We should be looking at the rate of evictions and comparing it to pre-pandemic rates. Okay, and Ingrid? I think we really need to be watching homelessness numbers. Granted, the data are not great, but many cities are really struggling now with, um, and many people, I should say, are struggling now with increases in homelessness. If I can cheat and just add one more, I, I think we also 
want to be sure that we can learn from this unprecedented amount of emergency rental assistance that's provided by the federal government to understand how many families were actually stabilized and what would the costs and, and benefits be of creating a standing rental emergency rental assistance program going forward. And Adam, your thoughts on those comments, and then we want the one your one data point. I, and I, I agree fully with that. And I think the utility and value of the emergency rental assistance program really demonstrated how much it's necessary and to have that infrastructure standing. You can't create these new programs as the crisis is happening. So ensuring the infrastructure is there. So when the funding spigot is turned on and off, you can quickly deploy and use it is, is absolutely critical. I think for me, and I'll, I'll do somewhat of a cheat like Ingrid, I'm going to combine two metrics together. People often look at rent burden and what percentage of income people are paying for housing. There's an interesting metric around housing and transportation costs that combines the two because often people offset lower rents by moving farther and farther away from cities and job centers and they increase their transportation costs. So Center for Neighborhood Technology does a housing and transportation cost index that combines the two. And I think that's critically important, both from an affordability and equity standpoint, but from a climate standpoint, so that we're not just trading off lower housing costs with increased emissions and locking those in for a generation. Thank you so much for sharing your experiences and insights. This was a fascinating conversation. We appreciate your input. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Follow the Data. Bloomberg Associates is committed to making cities stronger, safer, more equitable, and efficient, which is what initiatives like the Bloomberg Peer Cities Housing Network help facilitate. Many thanks to Adam Freed, Ingrid Gould-Ellen, and Vero Soto for joining us. As always, the views of our guests are entirely their own, and Bloomberg Philanthropies hasn't independently verified any of the statements made by this episode's guests. If you haven't already, please be sure to subscribe to follow the data. This episode was created by Amy June, Devin Alessio, Erica Gudmundsen, Amanda Mack, Jane Bartman, and Ryan Bell. To learn more about Bloomberg Associates, visit associates.bloomberg.org. You can follow Bloomberg Associates on Twitter and LinkedIn to learn how we advise mayors and their staffs to help cities become stronger, safer, and healthier places to live. As our founder, Mike Bloomberg, says, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. So until next time, keep following the data. I'm Catherine Oliver. Thanks for listening.